You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. So today, as we get ready to get into Daniel chapter 11, you know, you think about our world. Our days are filled with being bad days. It's time for some good days, some good news in the midst of bad news, in in days that are filled with uncertainty, to experience certainty that God knows and rules the future. Oftentimes when crisis hits, it it seems like we're just kind of stopped in our tracks, but the one thing we can't stop doing is opening the Word of God and hearing from the God of the Word. And in Daniel chapter 11, to set the backdrop, the temple in Jerusalem, their version of the church is closed, and it has been for 70 years. So this man, Daniel, couldn't be in the house of God, worshiping with the family of God like we get to do right now. And he's hesitant, scared about the future and what it'll hold And the reason the word of God speaks to your circumstances as it did Daniel's is because of this simple fact. The Bible may be old, but it's timeless. And as a result, it's always timely. In Daniel chapter 11, we are going to meet several different rulers over about a 300-year period of human history predicted all in advance by God who knows in in every detail everything that will happen in the future, including in the present day. I'm going to start with this warning. Daniel chapter 11 is the second longest chapter in the book of Daniel. 45 verses to cover of a 2,500-year-old book. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? So in Daniel chapter 11, there's going to be the succession of nations and kings, which God is revealing will rise up in the future from Daniel's day. So let's jump in. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now this is a divine being, perhaps the angel Gabriel, we're not told, speaking, ministering to Daniel. And he goes on, he says, now then I tell you the truth, this divine being says, three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. He's talking about a succession of kings. The last one will be the most prominent, most prosperous of them. We know his name historically. Now, you may not know his name in Hebrew as well. It's Ahasuerus. But you may know his Greek name, Xerxes. Starts with an X. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, there is a whole Bible in which his story plays a leading role. It's the book of Esther. Ultimately, this king, Ahasuerus in Hebrew, Xerxes in Greek, marries Esther. Now, why does God care about these nations? Why should we focus on them? Because God is a father who loves all of his kids. And right now, his kids are not in their home in Israel. They were moved 700 miles away to Babylon. And now, Persia is in control, which is modern-day Iran. 
And he's going to get them home, ultimately to the temple where Jesus can come. So the story moves from Persia in this succession of kings and the rule and reign of Esther to the nation of Greece in these verses yet to come, in verses 3 to 20, anyhow. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. This is Alexander the Great, a very famous person in the history of the world. So now we're looking about 200 years into the future from Daniel's time. Let me tell you this, God knows the future. God rules the future. And you don't need to know the future. You just need to know the one who does and trust him that he will get you through whatever your future comes. He's telling us here about the eventual coming of Alexander the Great. This man is legendary. His parents raised him to be a great warrior king. He was to succeed his father on the throne. Tragic thing happened. His parents were assassinated. And so he has to assume the throne at the age of 20. His father had this grand vision of taking his Greek army and marching toward and overcoming and overtaking the Persian Empire, Darius the Mede. We actually detailed this a couple of weeks ago through the famous Jewish first century historian, Flavius Josephus. He goes by the name Josephus. (laughs) One word name. And we thought Shear had a, you know, something. Oprah, Paul. (laughs) Josephus tells us that Alexander the Great had a dream that he would be met by a man wearing purple and this man would tell him, it is time. It is time to get your army and march and conquer the nation of Persia. And so he begins to assemble his army and he started marching from Greece to Persia to conquer Darius the Mede and the Persian Empire. Along the way is the nation of Israel, and he conquers it. As a result, he would have had access to the temple. Now, previous invading kings would always stop by the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because there was gold and other precious objects that were devoted to the worship of God, but they wanted to take it as as loot. But as Alexander the Great was approaching Jerusalem... The high priest went out to meet him to see if he could assuage his coming and conquering these people yet again and ransacking the the temple. But here's the thing. The high priest goes out to meet Alexander the Great, and the high priest is wearing purple. He has no knowledge of the dream that Alexander had of a man wearing purple who was going to meet him and tell him it's time to get your army together. And that's exactly what this high priest does. Josephus describes how astounded Alexander was to, be, to realize that he was going to be used of God. He wasn't a believer, but God knew him. What's more, the high priest then took Alexander the Great into the temple and opened up the book of Daniel, and showed him where all this was going to take place. 200 years earlier, it was written. Showed Alexander the Great where it was prophesied that he would be the one to rise up and conquer the Persian Empire. As a result, Alexander the Great joined the high priest in offering a sacrifice to God. 
Now, was he a believer now? Did he do it just as an act of honor? We don't know. In any case, he did guarantee the high priest, therefore guaranteeing the the community, that the people, the Jewish people, would have religious freedom. They would be able to continue their worship of God in the temple. That ultimately Jesus could then come. And Alexander the Great did go on and conquer the Persian Empire. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up. So in other words, it's not going to be long. There's not much of a gap between he has risen and his empire will be broken up. Parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. There's something significant about the four we'll see in just a second. So his empire will not go to his descendants. Nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Looking down the corridor of history, Alexander the Great would die at a young age after he amassed this empire. He didn't have any heirs. So the number four comes back into play here. There were four generals under Alexander's leadership. When he died, the age of 32, those four generals then took over four parts of his empire. They would eventually take this united kingdom into four divided kingdoms, but there would be two kind of in the north and they would form an alliance and two kind of in the south and they would form an alliance. When you think of north, think of Syria, but more than that, the The region was much more broad than just one nation, but think of Syria and and so on to the north. When you think of the south, it was Egypt and beyond that as well. So you have uh, leaders, kings, rulers in the north and in the south, and guess where Israel is? God's people right in the middle. And war would break out time and time again, and you're going to hear it as it's read between the Northern Alliance and the Southern Alliance, and this would last 150 plus years. Israel right in the middle, and this happened in the third and fourth centuries BC, verse six. After some years, they will become allies. So those two alliances. The daughter of the king of the South will go to the king of the North to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power And he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. In other words, a new king. He will attack the forces of the the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. What happens here is prophesied in advance and history records it. There's a king in the north, there's a king in the south, and I'm not gonna get into all the names because there's just, it's like one person's name is the first, second, third, fourth of them. And you'll hear a couple of them, but you won't remember them and I'll probably mispronounce them. So I don't want to look foolish. Nevertheless, any more so, some of you would say. King of the north, king of the south, and it's prophesying here that what 
would eventually happen is some kind of intrigue within this family. Well, one of the king dies. His son inherits the throne. But there's war between his side and the king on the other side. So in an effort to create peace, they arrange a marriage between the two sides. Here's how it went down. This king had a wife and a son. So that would be the rightful heir, right? But he decided to divorce her, disown the child, and marry someone from the other side. Got her pregnant, had a son by her. So now this would be the rightful one. He's disowned the original one. However, the ex-wife angrily has, I mean, this is like as the ancient world turns, soap opera. (laughs) The ex-wife has the ex-husband, his new wife, his new son, all murdered. So, So that her son will remain the rightful heir and could assume the throne and expand his empire. It all happened just as God prophesied. Some of you are thinking, man, my head's spinning. Oh, just wait. The whole point is this. You and I have no idea how complicated it is to be God, how many details that God is working in and through. But know this, God is in the big storyline of history and he's in the little details along the way. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war in a similar great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but will be defeated. War after war, right? When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success." Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, another word, another phrase for Israel, and will have the power to destroy it. All right, don't get lost in all the details. Just trust that God is in and through all of human history and know that it was all fulfilled. Here's why it's important. The centerpiece of history is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the Bible prophesied that Jesus will come to the temple in Jerusalem That's why this is important for God's people to get back to Israel, to open up the temple, to continue their worship of God so that Jesus Christ could come. Now, let me pause here a minute and kind of go off tangent. 
Some people wonder, and books have been written for, for decades, about how, how is America in all of this prophecy? Where, where is it related? I hate to tell you, it's not. Look, I love our nation. But at the end of the day, our nation is not the center of prophecy in history. The nation of Israel is you and I are not the center of history. Jesus Christ is. Look, the Bible is for us, but it's about him. That's ultimately where all of this is driving. It continues. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. All right, so another political alliance is trying to be formed. One king who is dishonest wants to overtake the other king and his massive empire so he can have it all. So here's what he decides. I'll give my daughter in marriage, and then my daughter will be loyal to me she will betray her husband, and I'll be able to get both kingdoms, all that I ever wanted. You've probably heard of this daughter that this prophecy is related to. Her name is Cleopatra. Her father fulfilled this prophecy. He gave her in marriage for this political alliance. The story is well known that ultimately she loved her husband. She was loyal to him. In other words, she would not betray her husband. Her father did not get to fulfill his deceitful scheme to take it all over. Story goes on. So what will happen to this dad then? He will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this... He will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Well, this king, I'll tell you his name. It's Antiochus III. He marched westward toward the coastlands. History records that this happened. Verse 18 was fulfilled. And then he was defeated, just as verse 19 said he would. He was on his way home and he died en route. And he so inherited this, this son, this massive debt to the Roman Empire. So what does the son do? He sends out tax collectors so they can maintain the splendor of their kingdom. Where does he send them to? Israel. <laughs> hey, let's just pick on those people. Let's pick on God's people some more. Let me just say that he tried to plunder the temple, but he died mysteriously, possibly by poisoning. It was prophesied, we just read it, that he would die not by anger or in battle. What I'm telling you is that God has incredible precision in history and in prophecy. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are like robots and we can't make decisions for ourselves. We are morally responsible for the decisions we make, just like they were. But ultimately, God will bring everything according to his purpose. Now, that brings us to Israel. And this is where the story gets even darker. So Antiochus III will be succeeded by a contemptible, a horrible person who had not been given the honor of royalty. In other words, he wasn't supposed to be the king. But he will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. The person that we're talking about here is Antiochus IV. He thinks he's a God-man. He gives himself that title. What he decides is that I'm going to be worshipped as the God-man. The problem with that is that we worship the real God-man. His name is Jesus. So this is a demonic counterfeit. This is counterfeit Jesus. And history records that Antiochus IV comes to power around 175 BC. As was prophesied, he's not in the bloodline of the royal family. He was not supposed to be the successor. He does away with his nephew and overtakes the throne. And history records that this all happened long after Daniel. Continues. And coming to an agreement with him, after coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them. will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. In other words, he already comes from this horrific bloodline, but this is the worst of the worst. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. In other words, hey, let me keep you loyal to me, right? <laughs> he will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. Okay, more war. The king of the south will rage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. In other words, it's, it's an inside job. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. Antiochus IV is the Antichrist of the B.C. era. This is a ruthless man. What he would do, he would enter into a peace treaty with someone. And as soon as that other person let their guard down, Antiochus IV would take his army and attack and slaughter them. It says that he would continually roll over people. He's like the blitzkrieg of Nazi Germany. He was the Adolf Hitler before there was an Adolf Hitler. He is rolling over nation after nation, and he's trying to eradicate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. He is trying to tear down the temple, stop the worship of God. He is a horrible demonic man who is filled with the power of Satan. Then it says, two kings with their hearts bent on evil, he's one of them, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. 
The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. Here's what it's saying about Antiochus. By the way, there are literally two kings that sat down at a table and they tried to out-deceive each other. It didn't work. They got frustrated. They both walked away from the table. Went, you know, they took their toys and went home. As a result, remember, God knows everything in advance, knew every detail of human history. What happens? Let me, let me just summarize the next few verses. Antiochus IV is so frustrated that he can't get this deal done. So he's taking his army. He's marching away. And where does he have to go through? Israel. Remember, Israel's in the middle. On his way home, as he's passing by Israel, he decides, I'm going to attack God's people. I hate them anyways. And I hear that their temple is filled with gold. I might as well get some profit on my way home. This is recorded as one of the darkest moments in Jewish history. In just three days' time, he had 80,000 Jewish people slaughtered. He wanted the worshipers of God killed. He wanted the temple shut down. He didn't want anyone hearing about the coming Messiah. He would set himself up as the counterfeit Jesus. Here's what Antiochus IV did. He overtook the temple and he put one of his own pagan demonic false priests in charge of the temple and he put the image of Zeus there so that Zeus would be worshipped in the temple where God was supposed to be worshipped. Perhaps even worse. Here at the altar in the temple, where generally it was a lamb that was slaughtered, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What Antiochus IV ordered was that a pig, an unclean animal, be slaughtered on the altar in the temple. This was called the abomination. Jesus referred to it as the abomination that causes desolation. We'll see that in a little while. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. In other words, there are some of the Jewish people who will side with him. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made spotless. That's the believers. Until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Remember, if the temple is closed, Jesus can't come. If the Jewish people are destroyed, Jesus can't come. Now, what happens is prophesied in advance and recorded in two books, First and Second Maccabees. Now, we don't have those in our Bible. They are in the Catholic Bible. Now, I'm not hating on, on Catholics when I say this. During the Reformation, 
the Protestant churches understood the same as the Jewish understanding that the Old Testament was already complete. Genesis through Malachi. The Catholic Church added some of the books. They're not bad books. They're good history. They're just not Bible books. Anyway, 1st and 2nd Maccabees tells of a humble rural priest who had five sons. And so the six of them, this man and his five sons gathered up 7,000 fellow countrymen, Jewish believers. So it's like saying, okay, 7,000 church people. And they revolted against Antiochus IV and his elite army. 7,000 church people against 60,000 elite fighters. Guess who won? God's people. They rebuffed this evil king, Antiochus IV. And the celebration ended up being an eight-day celebration. You may have heard of it. It's called Hanukkah. Now, between the section of Daniel that we've read and what's to come, the next section is a few thousand years gap in human history. You and I live in that gap. So everything up to this point that, is, that God said would happen has happened. In fact, in these first 35 verses, 135 prophecies have been fulfilled. I think it's safe to say God can be trusted. What we're going to study now is the future and what is still to come. We live in the time between the times. And what we're going to hear now is about the Antichrist coming at the end. You see, when, when Daniel gave his prophecy, it was a double fulfillment. Part of it was fulfilled just a few centuries later in Antiochus IV. But it will also have a fulfillment at the end of time when the Antichrist supreme, if you will, will rise up. Here's how that portion starts. So whoever this person is, this king, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify who? <laughs> Himself. Above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. The spirit of the Antichrist continues in every age. And ultimately in the end, the spirit of the Antichrist is going to seek to do the same thing that Antiochus IV did around 175 BC. The same thing that Satan did in heaven. And that is to try to take God down and become the new God. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. He's, he's becoming a new religion altogether. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses. In other words, war, violence. 
A God unknown to his ancestors, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. I believe that's the power of Satan. And will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end of the king of the south, will engage, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great fleet of ships. In other words, it's like the world is trying to go at him. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, as if they were nothing. He will also invade the beautiful land. Again, that's Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. So the point is this, at the end, the same thing that's been happening will continue to happen. The Bible is not just about what happened, but what always happens. The Bible tells us that behind these kings and kingdoms and rulers and nations are demonic powers, principalities, and spirits. These demonic forces are trying in every generation to set up a counterfeit kingdom of God. A king other than Jesus. Some form of worship other than according to scripture. All of this driven by a demonic spirit in place of the Holy Spirit. You see everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. And this is true continually. And at the culmination of history. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and, and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Again, that's in Israel. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This is the Antichrist. First, John tells us that many Antichrists have come. Anti means opposed to and to replace that's what Satan is always trying to do. He's always trying to oppose Jesus and replace Jesus. That's what he wants. Ultimately, at the end, there is the Antichrist, a literal demonically possessed person or being who will rise up. But along the way, there'll be a lot of Antichrists. And the spirit of the Antichrist is continually at work trying to get God's people, trying to get you and me to submit or surrender or be subdued by some spirit other than the spirit of God. Any time that we can not share the gospel, any time that we want to water down the message, any time that we think, you know what, I think the world's got the better idea on this than, than the Bible or the church, all of its teachings, what it wants you to commit to, what makes it profitable for you, it's going to be against and seeking to replace Jesus Christ as Lord. And you need to know that that has been the case all along. There was a war in heaven 
where Satan wanted to take down and replace Jesus. He did the same thing in the garden with our first parents, trying to take down and replace God as their highest authority. It's a work throughout human history that will culminate at the end of days. And it says that at the end, no one will help him. He will still get his demise. You know what that means? God will take care of him. Whoever this person, this, this being, this, this force, this problem is, God will take care of it once and for all. Some of you may hear this. You think, yeah, okay, 11 weeks of Daniel now. I just don't know that I, I just don't know about it. I don't know about Daniel. I don't know about prophecy and these last days and Antichrist and war behind wars and unseen realm and what happens that only God sees. I'm just not sure. Then trust Jesus. The most trustworthy person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. Here's a portion of what he says recorded in Matthew chapter 24. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place... The abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Ultimately, the Antichrist is going to want to take down Jesus as Lord and replace the worship of Jesus with the worship of himself. This is what Jesus is prophesying will happen in the last days. So let me say this. The spirit of the Antichrist always exists where people worship themselves the reason the Antichrist wants people to worship him as God is because he worships himself as God. And if you think that you are an individual with autonomous power that, look, hey, I only give an account to myself. I've got to be true to myself. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Because you see, we were made by God. We were made for God. We will be judged by God. We will spend eternity sentenced by God. The center of human history is not you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate authority is not you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you wake up every morning and look in a mirror to greet your God, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Jesus says this. Same chapter, a few verses later. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. It's the title that Jesus gives himself. It comes from Daniel. Some 70 times in the gospel, Jesus uses Son of Man for himself. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Those who are not believers, they're people of the earth, if you think of it that way. They will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here's what I'm telling you. Everything that God prophesied came true. We are now in the time between the times. And just as Daniel got to peer into the future, we get to peer into the future. And when you take in all of Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus says. Things will get worse. The spirit of the Antichrist will rise up. Life for believers will get harder. The days will get darker. And when you think all hope is lost, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds as King of kings and Lord of lords with power and glory. And he will utterly destroy all evil and all evil doers. But he will bless and love and serve and protect and heal all that are his and we get to be with him forever together. 
You and I need to live in light of that future. I don't know what the short term holds, but I know what the eternal hope is. So here's the big idea. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. He is the only king and his kingdom is the only kingdom that is going to save. He lived without sin. He died for your sin. He rose conquering sin and death and he's coming again to bring you into eternal life. That's our Jesus for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in days, our days, that so often are filled with bad news, we are thankful for good news. In a day when all the kingdoms of the earth are shaken, we thank you for ruling over a forever kingdom that will never be shaken. We thank you, Lord, that though there is much we do see, there is much that we don't see, and you are at work behind the scenes. God, it would be so easy for us to, in sitting here this morning, say, you know, it makes no sense to open a 2,500-year-old book and look at 45 verses on political history. But God, your word is timeless. So we thank you for it. And we trust you for the future that is yet to come until we see Jesus face to face. And it's in his name that we pray this prayer and the prayer he taught us saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.